With an open mind for learning and a soft spot for paediatrics, this is Fontanelle. Today's episode is on lymphadenopathy. I'm Caroline Storey, a paediatric trainee in Wessex, and I'm joined today by Dr Phil Wiley, a consultant paediatrician in Dorset County Hospital. Now, one of his interests is oncology, and he's also very involved in local paediatric and GP training, recently particularly around the Healthier Together material. Phil's going to discuss important features to cover in the history and examination, helping us to quickly and confidently distinguish between common conditions such as lymphadenitis and reactive lymphadenopathy and the very rare but very worrying potentially malignant conditions. Phil highlights that with the incidence of childhood cancer at 1 in 10,000 new cases a year, a GP is likely to see one or two new cases in their entire career. The red flags to keep in the forefront of your mind are lymph nodes larger than two centimetres and growing, supraclavicular and popliteal nodes, associated symptoms of fever, weight loss, night sweats, unusual pain and itching, and hepatosplenomegaly, pallor and unexplained bruising. We'll also be talking about cat scratch disease and atypical mycobacterial infection, but as Phil points out, not all lymphadenopathy is associated with infection and cancer, and we'll also be briefly mentioning JIA, Kawasaki and eczema. For the visual learners amongst you, I'd highly recommend you making reference to the Healthier Together Clinical Pathway for Lymphadenopathy, the link for which is in the show notes. And thank you so much for talking to us today. And we're going to cover lymphadenopathy. We are indeed. And um, this is a, a really common presentation, I know, and it does worry a lot of parents and um, practitioners too. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think if you see a lump in your child, you worry. And I think for parents, they worry it's something sinister. Mm. And the common place that we see sort of benign reactive uh, lymph nodes or lymph nodes that um, have become a bit inflamed and persist are in obvious areas, like particularly the neck and the groin. Mm -hmm. And so parents notice them. And once uh, they notice a lump in their child, they want an explanation for it and need reassurance that it's not something sinister Mm. which it rarely is Mm. okay take a step back what is normal what would you classify as a normal distribution yeah well as you know we all have lymph nodes around our body to you know produce antibodies when we get infection and so on so um it's not surprising that uh, in children that have been exposed to lots of bugs and and so on and to get visible um, and palpable nodes is pretty common, particularly in the neck and the groin, um, uh, to the axilla uh, to a lesser extent, and um, very, very commonly when you examine children you'll be able to find a few lymph nodes if you, if you feel hard enough, um, particularly in those, those areas. Um, and uh, up to, I think uh, Healthier Together talks about the two centimetre rule, that if it's more than two centimetres, then you really need to have a clear idea what the diagnosis is. But uh, up to two centimetres, if uh, they're in the typical sites uh, and the child's well, um, 
it's probably normal. Mm. Um, need to take a history, which we can talk about, um, but a very, very common finding. Yeah. And what the parents need is reassurance, not fancy blood tests. Great, okay. So when I have a child in front of me with lymphadenopathy and I want to be able to reassure parents, what am I going to be asking in the history? When they first notice the lymph nodes, the duration of them, whether the child had some other symptoms that might explain why the lymph nodes have got bigger, whether they had a cold at the time, a sore throat, if they're looking at nodes in the neck, then if they've had a sore throat just before the parents notice, then clearly that makes it much more likely to be a reactive lymphadenopathy. So I think you want to know something about duration. If they're longer term, the duration, what's happened to the lymph nodes since you first noticed them? If they're getting bigger with intercurrent infections but then reduce in size, that would be against any sort of uh, malignant process. It's just the lymph nodes reacting to the infection and doing their job. Um, whereas if they're inexorably increasing in size, um, I'd be more worried. I'd be asking how the child is generally, um, whether there's any uh, associated symptoms. We'll talk later about the very, very small chance of it being something more sinister, particularly uh, malignancy, and you might think about then, well, weight loss with lymphomas, we're thinking about itchiness, night sweats, those sort of systemic symptoms, you might be asking about that. We'll talk about some alternative, uh, more unusual diagnosis. So it might be worth asking whether they've got any pets in their household, whether there's any foreign travel. Rare, but TB does happen. And sometimes taking a, a history as to whether there's any risk factors for TB might be relevant. But that's uh, much less common, obviously. Mm. So we've got how big they are, how long they've been there, are they changing at all? Um, anything about the site? Yeah, the commonest place to feel lymph nodes is, is uh, the cervical area and the groin. Axillary do happen, um, but there are a few areas that I'd be really concerned if I felt nodes, and that be supraclavicular and popliteal. They're rarely benign, and uh, when you uh, examine children for lymphadenopathy, it's important to feel all the all the areas, including those areas. And if you found lymph nodes in those two sites, supraclavicular, popliteal, um, you should refer those in. Mm, that's really useful. So let's move on to examination then. What else should we be looking for? Yeah, well, if you've got localised lymphadenopathy, you want to look where those uh, lymph nodes drain. Um, and so if you've got cervical lymphadenopathy, good doing a good ENT examination, you know, all around the scalp and so on, just to see if there's anything that would explain, a, you know, a focus of infection of why these lymph nodes have got bigger. Other than looking at the lymph nodes, um, you need to check whether there's any hepatosplenomegaly. Um, uh, obviously, particularly important if you've got generalised lymphadenopathy to be looking for hepatosplenomegaly. And a general examination of the child, you know, do, do they look otherwise well? Is there any paleness, anything to, uh, bruising or anything else to suggest any un underlying problem? Um, but basic principle for limp localised, look at the area that they drain. Mm. Is there any number that you'd be worried about or is that really irrelevant? Um, in some ways, the more there are in terms of localised lymph nodes, the more reassured I am that with... A malignant process such as lymphoma, you wouldn't expect 
scattered nodes in you know both sides for mm. example it'll be you know one cluster of nodes that mm. tends to, to get bigger and in a child that if they have several nodes in in the neck perhaps on both sides and otherwise well that would reassure me mm -hmm. uh, slightly so I don't think there is any um, golden rule about number. Yeah, and when you're feeling them, um, so you just describe what they feel like and what would worry you. Yeah, so benign reactive lymph nodes generally are not tender. In the acute phase they can be a little bit uncomfortable when you, when you press them, but uh, if they're tender then you're thinking, well, perhaps there's something uh, more going on in that lymph node, perhaps it's a, a, a lymphadenitis, we can talk about that, or starting of a, an abscess. Um, with benign uh, lymph nodes, generally they're mobile and not attached to anything, and less than the two centimetre rule. And if nodes are sort of matted together and attached to things, that's more worrying that uh, there's something mm. uh, more sinister going on. OK, so we've done a good general examination, noted whether the child's well or unwell, is there hepatosplenomegaly, and then honing in on the lymph nodes themselves. Let's move on and talk through some cases that okay. you might come across. Yeah, OK. Well, in hospital, one of the commonest things that we see are a, a node actually getting infected. So you get a child that um, has had a febrile illness with a short history over a few days. One node in particular, or a group of nodes, suddenly gets bigger, uh, classically in, in the neck, and the child's febrile, and there's a hot, tender swelling one side of the neck. And in that sort of situation, it's not going to be cancer that's going on with that history of it coming up over a couple of days. It's an infective process, and uh, it's usually staph or um, occasionally strep in there, and uh, need to think about whether or not to start them on antibiotics, mm. considering whether you want to do any sort of inflammatory markers or cultures uh, beforehand, but uh, perfectly reasonable if you're seeing them in primary care and it's a short history to start them on uh, uh, a suitable antibiotic and review them in a couple of days' time um, to see if uh, things are improving. Antibiotics that uh, you could consider were strep and, and staph. Um, Cephalexin might be a good, good choice, or um, uh, Augmentin. I think uh, on the uh, microguide, the antibiotic recommendations that goes alongside Healthier Together, um, I think both of those uh, are mentioned as suitable antibiotics for uh, lymphadenitis. Um, does need review because occasionally it will uh, mature into an abscess and once you've got a, um, an abscess formed with pus that's going to need to be drained surgically. Mm. But the timing's got to be right. If you go in there too early you'll, it won't have organised sufficiently. And that is one uh, place where ultrasound is useful. Mm. Um, it can be difficult clinically to know whether there's pus in the centre of something, but uh, to do an ultrasound and get an idea whether there's some pus to drain out can be very useful. Um, but in the early stages, with a typical history and um, typical examination, I don't think you need ultrasound or blood tests, you just need to start them on antibiotics early and then review them and if they're um, not getting better or it's turning into more of a fluctuant mass, think about getting uh, a further assessment to think about incision and drainage. 
Okay, so what about if a child comes in who is hot and has got some swollen lymph nodes, but there's no localised redness or overlying skin changes. How would you approach that? Yeah, so this is the commonest scenario, isn't it? That um, it's not on one side, um, but it's more um, a general increase in the lymph nodes draining that area. Um, you know, you've had tonsillitis or an urti, and you've got lots of cervical yeah, glands. Exactly. That's reactive lymphadenopathy. Yeah. It's just those lymph nodes doing their proper job to um, help fight the infection and that's what needs to be explained to the parents that it's part of the body's defence uh, against, doesn't need antibiotics um, and uh, reassure them that uh, the expectation that those glands will gradually go down mm. over the course of a number of weeks. It's, it does take take while for them to settle and we do find in children that sometimes if you get a lymph node that's a little bit fibrous, some of these lymph nodes will stay for years. That longevity, if it's a small, less than two centimetre, that just gets bigger and smaller with intercurrent infections, the longevity of it wouldn't worry me. And I just reassure parents. I'm sometimes sent in children with a node that GPs are concerned that has just been there too long, asking perhaps to... Um, check a blood count um, and that's not usually a helpful investigation the vast vast majority of these persistent lymph nodes are entirely benign and if it's a non uh, um, alarming history and examination with no red flags you're probably just going to reassure them the differential that you're worried about in terms of a malignant process with these children is whether it could be a lymphoma it's not whether it's going to be leukaemia. Children with leukaemia um, don't present just with a well child with a, a lump in their neck, for example. They present with the signs and symptoms of pancytopenia, with, usually with some bone pain because the leukaemia cells are pressing uh, on the marrow as they replace the marrow, pale, easy bruising. Um, and that's with a history of just a node that's been there for months or years, leukemia is just not on the, um, on the cards. And with lymphoma, that is not a blood cancer. So blood tests don't help. You might get some changes, like changes of your ESR or your uh, lactate dehydrogenase, but generally blood tests don't help. And the only thing that's going to help you is taking the node out. And clearly we don't want to be taking nodes out of children, putting scars on their necks, unless there's a realistic prospect that there's uh, you know, something nasty going on. And as I said, the vast majority of these children, um, it's just a reactive lymph node. But sometimes I do see parents coming up really with high levels of anxiety because they're told, well, you need to blood count um, mm. to make sure there's nothing nasty going on. Mm. Um, and as I said, that's not going to help us. Something else that I've come across is this association with eczema and lymphadenopathy. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, eczema, um, the skin tends to be leakier. So not surprisingly, more antigens can get through um, uh, the inflamed eczematous skin. And not surprisingly, eczema is associated with generalised lymphadenopathy. So um, if you see that child with bad eczema and generalised lymphadenopathy sort out their eczema and make it less leaky, leaky um, and usually 
their lymphadenopathy will improve. So you can do that as your primary management, sort out their eczema and keep an eye on their lymphadenopathy. Clearly if there are red flags that they've got um, other signs of uh, paleness or hepatospanomegaly, they're red flags and you refer them in. But for the majority of these children with eczema, their lymphadenopathy is related to their uh, leaky skin. And when, when you sort out their eczema, how long do you think it's going to take for these lymph nodes to resolve? Good question. I'm not sure I know the answer completely, but I think it's going to be weeks or months. Mm. And, uh, you, you know, we don't have a cure for eczema. We can improve their eczema, um, but it's still going to have its uh, fluctuations. Um, and, uh, you know, so you'll possibly have a degree of lymphadenopathy, you know, that's ongoing. Yeah. You mentioned pets earlier. Yeah. Well, the common one that we do see is cat scratch, okay? So there's, it's usually a young cat or a kitten uh, in the house and a history of the child being scratched and then they get a usually auxiliary but sometimes cervical lymph node come up um, and that is almost certainly going to be cat scratch. Um, we used to do um, the appropriate serology for Bartonella with it. I'm told by my infectious diseases colleague that that's no longer available at the reference lab and now it's purely a clinical diagnosis. Um, but it's usually pretty clear from the history if you, uh, if you ask the right questions and parents are usually quite impressed that you, you, know, you know that they've got a kitten in the household and you can reassure them that it's going to get better by itself. We don't treat with antibiotics now and it resolves over a couple of months. Great. Just thinking about other causes as well, um, there, there's the atypical mycobacterial infection, isn't there? And I saw a case of that recently, which was which was sort of quite unusual for me to see, but it did fit the classic description of there being this quite well little girl, um, and she had unilateral lymphadenopathy and a, this sort of gradual discoloration over the top. Often a sort of violaceous yeah, sort of yeah, color exactly, about. yeah. So, um, and once we'd made the diagnosis, we didn't actually treat this. We've we've just we're watching and waiting and seeing how it goes. But I think the the um, thought is that this will resolve on its own. That's right. So um, this uh, infection, the atypical mycobacteria, typically live in soil. Uh, preschool children tend to mess around and eat bits of soil, so it's that age group that tend to get these atypical uh, mycobacterial infections, particularly in the neck. What you describe is sort of the classical uh, story of a lymph node and then this sort of discoloration of the skin over the top. It's a clinical diagnosis, um, and the natural history, if you do nothing, is for um, resolution, although it can take quite some time and sometimes it will discharge the alternative is to chop the node out mm. um, and that is curative you don't need um, antibiotic treatment as well um, there's no additional benefit of, of that and by chopping it out you confirm the diagnosis and uh, it, it is curative but the risk obviously is you know the next got a lot of sensitive structures particularly nerve damage mm. of uh, so the yeah. observation is again so, perfectly yeah. reasonable i should just say with the atypical mycobacteria that you do need just to take a history of any uh, risk factors for mycobacterium tuberculosis you know uh, nodes in the neck associated with that it used to be called scrofula and is a 
form of presentation of uh, uh, TB. So asking about risk factors um, uh, for TB and then uh, investigating appropriately. And I, if I was suspecting uh, a possibility of mycobacterial infection, I would talk to um, the um, TB lead as to the best best way to investigate that with quantiferon or or I'd take expert advice for that. That's a rare condition. So we've talked about the fact that most lymphadenopathy is benign, then we've got these various diagnoses which we can treat or do something about. You've talked about some of the red flag features, but I think it'd be useful to just go over the red flags if that's okay and what specifically you're looking for and looking to exclude. Okay. I think that's a really important question. Just to uh, finish on, Caroline, what sort of uh, red flags would give you a fairly low threshold for referral? Size is important. Um, Healthy Together talks about the two-centimetre rule. And if it's uh, a two-centimetre node and growing, unless you have a clear idea of a diagnosis, such as, um, you know, they just had a reactive lymphadenopathy and you're going to review them in a few weeks, or you're treating them for lymphadenitis, and uh, you know you've got a, a, a treatment plan uh, and some safety netting in place. But without that, I think bigger than two centimeters have a low threshold for referral. We've talked about the site and supraclavicular and popliteal nodes always uh, necessitating a referral. Clearly, if uh, a child has associated symptoms. Um, particularly weight loss, night sweats, um, bone pain, um, itching, then the likelihood of something more sinister, particularly lymphoma, leukaemia, obviously increases and uh, refer those in. Um, And uh, again, along that route, hepatospanomegaly, pallor, unexplained bruising, again, that would raise your concerns about uh, leukaemia in particular. So at what point would you consider doing a blood film? If you're suspecting... A leukaemia, um, then requesting a film as well as a full mm. blood count is absolutely key to be examined by somebody experienced looking for the presence of, of blasts. It's really important to specifically request that. I should say, just to put cancer in some sort of context for primary care, that the incidence of uh, cancer in the 0 to 16 age group is about 1 in 10,000 uh, uh, per year. And that equates to one to two new cases in a GP career. So think about how often you see glands up in children versus that sort of instance of cancer. It gives you an idea of the relative relative risk of, um, of it being cancer. Mm. Yeah, that definitely puts it into perspective. Are there any other diagnoses that would come under this red flag group that aren't malignancy? Yeah, um, not all lymphadenopathy is related to infection or cancer. There's lots of, the differential is pretty pretty wide. Mm-hmm. So lots of other inflammatory conditions, um, uh, autoimmune conditions, uh, juvenile inflammatory arthropathy, um, Kawasaki's, there's a, quite a number of different conditions. I should mention perhaps EBV, um, uh, Epstein-Barr, uh, glandular fever, perhaps the commonest cause for generalised lymphadenopathy. So if you see a child with a typical uh, history, sore throat, right age group, um, with generalised lymphadenopathy, certainly worth uh, thinking about doing their serology for EBV um, and uh, their 
lymphadenopathy is often generalised with that, and uh, uh, that's your diagnosis. Um, with a well child with um, persistent generalised lymphadenopathy um, that's persisting, I think if it's going on for a number of months, um, and the, in the absence of any other clear diagnosis such as eczema, I think there might be worth a referral in just to think about the wider differential um, uh, in, in a paediatric general clinic. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much once again, Phil Wiley, for a really informative discussion based on, I know, plenty of clinical experience. Um, I think it highlights once again the importance, as in any area of medicine, of taking a really focused history. So we're talking about the size, and I think the two centimetre rule is a really easy one to remember. How many lymph nodes? How long have they been there? Are they changing? Um, and where are they? Thinking in particular about supraclavicular and popliteal nodes as being worrying. Of course, we need to know what else is going on. Is there an infection or has there been recently? And are there any of those worrying red flag symptoms? I think that by using material presented here, as well as the information on the Healthier Together clinical pathway, we should be more confident in either reassuring parents that the lump that they've noticed in their child is actually a completely normal part of the immune response or whether it's something that we can treat or uh, in fact it's something that we need to think a little bit more about and perhaps refer on. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and if you have, please do subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please email me, carolinestory at fontanellepod at gmail.com and I will get back to you. But for now, from Fontanelle, goodbye.